0: To love learning, to laugh, to love, to be loved, to see beauty, to understand, to bring grace to the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Today's episode is dedicated to Ginny's House Children's Advocacy Center, which is a nonprofit agency in Newton, New Jersey, USA, that provides free psychotherapy to abused children. Learn more at ginnyshouse.org. My guest today is Neil Clark. Neil's an attorney that recently moved from living many years in Philadelphia to a smaller town of Milford, Pennsylvania. We found ourselves discussing the dilemma of how to disagree without being disagreeable when Neil and I were talking about politics, Um, especially how to do that when you're talking about politics with family, friends, and neighbors. Now, Neil, this whole discussion started when you shared a story about how as soon as you moved to your new town of Milford— you attempted to get to know the issues that were important to your town by joining the Milford Borough Facebook page. And I wonder if you would share the story with listeners that you shared with me.
1: Sure, I'd love to, and, and thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I moved up from Philadelphia after 20 years, and Milford is, is quite the difference from uh, Philadelphia. It's a smaller rural community. And I didn't know anyone. So what I thought the best way to kind of figure out what's going on in the town was to pull on, you know, look at the Milford Borough page and, and see what, the, what you know, issues are affecting the community. Well, the issue at that moment wasn't, hadn't anything to do with what was going on in the community, but had to do with a particular political issue. Um, in this case, it was voter ID. and um, And whether voter ID... Requiring voters to present an ID would suppress voting. Um, my view of it at the time was I thought it did. I thought that if you look at the statistics and everything else, that, yeah, I think it does suppress voting, and that was sort of my position. And I articulated it as such and got a on lot on the of,
0: Facebook page. Yes, on
1: the Facebook page. You
0: wrote, I think that if you make voters have to present an identification, it will prevent them from voting.
1: Exactly, and I thought that it was a, a way in which people were trying to suppress voting, and that was my position. And I kind of articulated that, um, and got a lot of pushback from my fellow Milford Borough residents. Um, and at first, it was um, I had, it was sort of shocking in a sense because it was very um, strongly worded, and it wasn't like a dialogue. It was. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And and I had to it was sort of this isn't how I envisioned it, engaging my neighbors initially. Um, but after a while, so I did some research and I pulled up some you know studies that talked about the connection between voters, IDs and, and suppressing the vote. And that then moved the dialogue to more to talking about the studies and
0: So you brought in those studies into the Facebook page exactly. discussion.
1: Exactly. And I brought in some factual what I thought was some support for my position, which then led, you know, the other person to present the actual critique of those studies. And it turned out that his critique was right. Um as I read the critique I realized that, you know what, those studies, there's some flaws to those. And they really don't say what I thought they said. And at that moment, I was stuck with the point of, wow, I'm going to have to concede this, um, <laughs> which is not something that in my profession you really ever want to do, right? And as a lawyer, you don't want to concede your point in front of the judge because you have to represent your client. It's not usually the best thing to do to say the other <laughs> side is right. Um So I was stuck with this, like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do here? And... I realized that part of it was, if I wanted to connect with these people who are my neighbors, part of it, you have to show a little humility and recognition that, you know, sometimes you're not right. And so I said, you know what, that's a fair point, and I think you're right about those articles, and thank you for presenting them to me, and I really enjoyed actually engaging in a discussion. And so I was left with that, thinking, you know, this is how it kind of should be, that Uh, You engage with someone and then you're able to find that you may still disagree somewhat, but that they you see their position and their side and you're able to have the uh, ability to say, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I need to reconsider this. And so as I thought about it, it's a we're in a, you know, election season here in America that is so divisive and people are so. On opposite sides. And frankly, it seems like no one really wants to connect. They just want to articulate their positions and then walk away from them. And I don't think that we still have to live with these people in our neighborhoods, in our families. And I think that we need to find a way to try to bridge that gap and and come together.
0: And have conversations and move towards the conversations, even if we fear doing it. Yes, it can be scary to talk about these sorts of conversations, which involve conflict. And it's not just your neighbors that you didn't know yet in your new town, but it can be family members.
1: Yes, exactly. And in my own family, um, my father and I are opposite sides of the political spectrum um, and supported opposite people in the you know the two thousand sixteen election. And your
0: dad, he's in North Carolina.
1: Yes. Yes, he's, he's in North Carolina, and, and we talk nearly every week. Um, and you know, generally we talk about what's going on in each other's lives, but we do get into politics now and then, and um, it is difficult because we are so you know opposite in that way. But we obviously love each other, and we respect each other. And I think that what has become difficult in this climate is that the other side doesn't respect the other side. Meaning, if you hold that position, how can I respect you? And obviously, with family members, you know, there's a built-in, almost assumed respect, right? Because they're your family, and so you you come at the argument having to respect them. Um, and but it's it's a challenge sometimes when you you know the other side feels that how could you feel this way? What are your values? If you support this, then your values must be so different than mine. But yet, you are in my family. And a family is, is the accumulation of sort of shared values that are passed down from generation to generation. And so it makes it particularly dicey when it comes to talking about political event, you know, issues with your family, particularly where your family members hold an entirely different view than you do.
0: So, how, how have you found a way to do that? With your dad.
1: Well, I th- it, it takes listening first and trying to understand what is it that they actually think about the issue and almost be able to parrot it back to them. Um, because I think that what happens is we're almost ready. We, can't, we think we know what the other side is going to say, and what we're thinking of instead of listening is actually what's going to be our retort to that. Um, which is not a great way to listen and to understand, right? Um, you know, and I face that because I'm sort of trained to do that. Is to when I'm listening to my opposition's argument.
0: So you're speaking about yourself as an attorney, as, yeah, as a an litigator, attorney, as a
1: litigator, as a you know, and litigation is simply lawsuits, right? I, I represent one side that's usually suing another person, and so, and I'm advocating for my side to win. And so when I'm listening in a courtroom to someone, I may be listening to what they say, but I'm also thinking, what's my automatic response to any of this? I'm not trying to necessarily understand. I'm trying to formulate my response and to rebut that. That's successful as a lawyer. It's not so successful with family members because what that does is just, what they hear is disagreement. You're not listening to me. And so I found myself having to take my professional training and sort of put that to the side and try to relate and connect as a family member. This is someone who raised you. This is someone who cares for you. And taking that in, and I think when I do that, I have a, a kind of better ability to to listen and to hear them. Um, it doesn't mean we agree. It just means I think that we're able to talk about it in a way that doesn't leave both sides being angry at each other.
0: Right. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page with you and um, with the idea of listening better. And in preparation for this podcast, I put together what I thought were four psychological principles that could could be helpful in talking about difficult conversations, especially about politics. And I'd like to share them with you. That'd be great. Okay. And the first one is right in line with what you just said. And it's the principle of seeking first to understand and then being understood. And I'm going to call that the St. Francis principle because I really like the prayer of St. Francis. And he talks about, um, that's one of the lines, about trying to understand before asking to be understood And in line with that, I thought um, it's helpful on a very practical level to just try to ask three questions of your opponent, so to speak. Just ask three questions before you say what you think or share what you think. And same idea about reflecting back a little bit of what they're saying before you jump into what you want to say. Um, And the third thought I had about, that was the idea of allowing for silent spaces.
1: Yes, and I think that there is, you know, with trying to build um, consensus, there's actually someone, his name is David Fairman, who um, actually gets people on very divisive issues, let's say pro-choice, pro-life. And one of the exercises that he does is to get one of the sides to articulate their position and then the opponent, so to speak, has to literally almost word for word re, uh, repeat what the other side has said. And to the point to where the other side is then asked, did you know, did your opponent state your position correctly? And so it forces the parties so to make sure they understand each other before even engaging in in time of trying to find common ground and consensus. So if when you're engaging with someone the point is to reach some type of consensus and understanding you first must understand what it is the your the other person is saying and so it requires just sort of being still and listening and not having the voice come up oh I'm going to here's my argument against that and here's my argument against that and, like I said as a an attorney, I face that difficulty because I'm trained to do the, the part that isn't helpful for listening, yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. to try to shut it down to try to what's my you know what's my counter to that mm-hmm. and I think if you want to understand someone, you have to let them speak, and you have to be still in the moment while they're doing it
0: the What we just talked about as i as a psychologist, I see that as addressing the cognitive and logical part of our brains. And when we get into these sorts of disagreements, it's not always logical and it can be emotional. And so the second principle I have is, has to do with the emotions and it's to remember Pareto's rule for hot button reactions
1: Remind me again what Pareto's rule is.
0: Pareto was a mathematician, and his rule is the 80-20 rule, which can be applied to anything. So in an organization, you can say 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Mm -hmm. And when I use Pareto's rule, when I talk to my patients in my practice, um, I talk about hot-button reactions, meaning someone says something and you have a reaction that's really strong and you know it's too strong for the situation. If you can really look at it, you know, all right, I recognize the way my body is feeling. This is too much. And chances are it's 20% about that topic now and it's 80% about something else or something from the past or something else. So, when you have a hot button reaction in this in a discussion like this, remember it's twenty percent about the now and eighty percent about something else. And use that to um, perhaps temper yourself or explore what that really is. Um, and as an example, um, recently in the United States, we we needed to make a decision as a nation about who the next Supreme Court justice was going to be, and the gentleman that was being considered had been accused of sexually assaulting a woman when they were in high school, or high school and college age. Do you remember which one it is?
1: It was high school that he was... In high school. Yes.
0: Yes. And I had a patient who was crying about it for days when he was approved. And we explored that. What What is that? I mean, she was angry at, at him. She was angry at Trump.
1: Well, uh, you know, without going into what your patient felt, I can tell you what I felt, which was... And, and, and it kind of goes to Pareto's 80-20 rule. So the what I envisioned, some of it was, you know, I'm the father of four daughters, and some of which are of high school age. And so, and they probably faced... Um, boys who were similar to what um, you know, Justice now Justice Kavanaugh was accused of being back in high school, and so I think when my reaction, to some of the part of it was not as the substance of what was being alleged, but was wow, what what about my own daughters who may face uh, an overly aggressive person at a party, and that's something that I I I'm fearful of, right? And my reaction to some of it, where I was, you know, an, an opponent of Kavanaugh putting aside his, you know, his judicial views, which I'm opposed to, but the the personal accusations against him caused a reaction in me um, that stemmed both from my own experience as a father, and not necessarily with the, the strength of the allegations. Um, and so in that, that way, I, I really that, what you said is actually very true, And so I had a reaction to it that was independent of um, the substance of the allegations. It had to do with my own. The, the prism through which I viewed the experience was the prism of, of a father of four daughters.
0: Exactly, right. So my second principle is for us to be aware of our own hot-button reactions. And explore that because it may not have to do with the actual situation that you are facing and talking about, it may have to do with other things. But we can also consider that when we're talking to someone and they have a hot button reaction.
1: Exactly. And I, particularly, and if you stick on families, we know our family's hot button issues, right? They're our family. And anyone who has siblings know how each sibling knows how to push the other sibling's hot button to get a reaction. (laughs) And so I think knowing that, knowing when you're talking to a family member, say about a political issue, and their face starts to get red and the anger starts to come, you have a unique ability as one of their fellow family members to understand and apply Pareto's rule, because you know probably 80% of what your family member is upset about, it has nothing to do with that. Um, and so, for example, in my situation, if I get a little too overheated talking about Justice Kavanaugh's uh, situation, my family say, well, you're a father of four. We know how kind of protective you are of your daughters, and I can understand why you're a little upset. And so it enables you to kind of understand where that person's perspective is coming from can be something completely independent from the substance of the disagreement that you're having. And I think you can do that, particularly with family members. It's more difficult with someone you just haven't met or you know only casually. But as we start approaching the holiday season and we're all going to be sitting down with family members and the inevitable political discussion comes up, I think it's helpful to remember, well, you know, why is it that, you know, Uncle Joe feels this way about immigration? Well, maybe Uncle Joe lost his job to, um, you know, the, when the textile mill moved to Mex- Mexico. And so he's he's been bitter about that. And so his views of Im- immigration may be tempered by that. And so if we understand that background about Uncle Joe, maybe we can understand where his anger and hostility toward immigration comes from, and try to if we want to build kind of consensus with Uncle Joe, then maybe what we could do was talk about, um, you know, the fear that he has that his job is going to be displaced and how maybe immigration actually helps jobs. And, you know, we can talk about the issue of immigration surplus, which actually immigration improves the economy, and maybe that's going to stem Uncle Joe's fears a little bit about immigration. So, But the
0: first part is to acknowledge the emotions that are driving Uncle Joe. Yes. And to maybe ask him about that and let him talk about that or give him the space to talk about the emotions that are driving it.
1: Exactly. And so instead of leaping right into the arguments about why... You're
0: wrong. Yeah, Yeah. you're
1: wrong. Let me tell you about all the benefits of immigration and then start citing statistics. You give Uncle Joe the space to talk about why he feels the way he does and how his personal experiences in his life may have led him to believe that. And so you're acknowledging his own experience. Um And then if you want to try to persuade, you know, Uncle Joe to see it in a different way, say, listen, we can address your concerns and immigration actually will address those. They won't um make those fears worse. They'll actually um, help alleviate them, because if we talk about that immigration brings more jobs and leads to more productivity, then that's going to take care of Uncle Joe's fear that more immigration means less jobs and and, and less opportunity.
0: I'm thinking about uh, two summers ago, the American Psychological Association's annual convention had some presenters there um, and I wrote down their names: Otman al qaeda He's from Kuwait University and Nick Skull from American University of Kuwait. Uh, these two professors and researchers collaborated and got access to terrorists that were in jail, from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Oh, wow. And they wanted to study what it, what it is that brought them to that situation. And one of the key things that stood out is that they had never been trained in critical thinking in their education.
1: Wow. And I I think I see that, and I think that some of the time is the difficulty when you talk about these topics, is you can notice sort of errors in, in reasoning on the other side, and... So when you it becomes difficult when one person is engaging in, in a certain type of reasoning, you're engaging in another. And it's hard to bridge that kind of understanding. Uh particularly when it comes to facts, right? I think that where we have difficulty right now is we can't even agree on what the facts are. Right? We have and so you know, or one side says, you know, the facts aren't what you say they are because the source for which you got those facts are completely discredited. It's from, you know, a, an outlet that we, that I can't agree is a reliable outlet. And so you get in these things where the lack of, you see the lack of critical thinking on the other side, and then that just causes the argument to just to devolve into sort of name-calling. Right, Um. But I think there's also a connection between one's ability to reason and the emotion that one brings to the issue.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. the ability to reason is helped by that first step of seeking first to understand, right? Yes. But the emotion can cloud that crit- critical thinking.
1: It can. Um, you, know, and, you know, there's a saying that your feelings aren't facts. Um, and facts aren't feelings. And so but i think people when they start to discuss these issues they're coming at it initially from a sense of feeling you know the feeling of anger or resentment and so the facts that they pick are the ones that they that actually feed that fear that they have or that view that they have or that feeling and so they pick the facts to meet the feeling
0: at times and, yes yeah. so the third idea i had Acknowledge some truth in what they're saying. And this isn't always easy. And I linked this to my studies of forgiveness for a different podcast on forgiveness that um, happened a few months ago. And forgiveness therapy, which is a part of having a conversation, one piece of it involves something called bearing the pain. And What that's talking about is that sometimes people can get caught up in a negative cycle of fighting in the same way that their generations of families Mm -hmm. have fought in certain ways. And in order to break that pattern in the next generation, someone has to stop. And in order to change the pattern, there has to be a transition period called um, involving bearing the pain.
1: Yeah, and I there's, you know, the pain obviously from, you know, family issues or family traumas is, is different than the the pain of admitting that you're wrong in the course of a political discussion or some policy discussion. And so, you know, we started with that example that at the beginning which is about the, you know, the voter ID issue where I had to kind of bear the um pain of having to admit that I was incorrect and that someone had presented something that changed my mind.
0: And that takes courage. You, yeah. you had to admit that you were wrong.
1: But, uh, I, yes, it may have taken courage, but I think if you come to the idea that the purpose of the dialogue in the first place is to understand, right? If, the, if that's my purpose, and through what the other person gave me and presented, I was able to now understand more than I did when I got to that. So the goals of the actual purpose, the goals had been fulfilled. If my goal is to to better understand and to understand my neighbor, understand the issue, it really didn't take that much courage at all because all I was doing was realizing that we have attained the goal of the discussion in the first place. And so that's why to understand is such a critical part of this and making that the goal. And that's why I think that Yeah, it was initial kind of, you know, pain of my ego, I guess, um, having to take a hit that I was wrong. But in the end, when I realized that the, the higher goal had been achieved, that really wasn't that big of a pain at all.
0: That speaks to the fourth thing I came up with, which is acknowledge the big picture of what you both want.
1: Yes, I think that's so important. And particularly when... But the problem is, I see that people go into these discussions with it's win or lose. It's you know we've not had a productive discussion unless the other side agrees with me, (laughs) and as we all know, that's very unlikely to happen. Right? The other side is is probably going to be has years and years of believing what they believe in, and your ten minute discussion or your couple comments on the Facebook post is not going to change their mind. So maybe removing that as the goal will help further the dialogue. If the goal is to better understand and to reach a better understanding of the issue at hand, and you can walk away from that interaction saying, yes, I think I now understand what this person is saying. Now I understand a little bit more about the issue than I did when I didn't engage. And with that understanding, we can then you know, at some point reach maybe a consensus on certain issues.
0: Yeah, you're talking about the goal for the conversation, but I'm talking about the bigger goals about, okay, what do we both want for our nation? Let's say if this is a political discussion. What, yeah. There are things that we both can agree on that we value.
1: Oh, yes. and For so, our
0: children, for yeah. our nation.
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, what we... Exactly, and I think that's particularly helpful to remember when you're engaging in discussions with... Your neighbors want what you want, right? Your neighbors want good education for their children. They want good jobs for the surrounding community. They want safe streets. They want, you know, bridges that don't fall apart. I think we can all agree that that's what we want. What we tend to disagree about are things, one, how to get there, or we, we forget that some of the issues that we're talking about have no bearing on, the, on, the, on those things that are most important to us. Right. And so I think we need to remember how, you know, we both share the idea of putting, you know, our kids in schools that are safe and to provide for, you know, our children. And that's the same goal, even though we may have different approaches to it.
0: So you have an 80-year-old friend. His name is Dilip. He's your cigar buddy. Yes. And, um, and he's
1: also my intellectual uh, hero because Dilip is the most intellectually curious person that I know. And he still reads all kinds of articles, even at the ripe old age of 80, and is always telling me about them and on fire about them. And it's, it's just a wonderful, he's a wonderful person to be around.
0: And he sent you an article from uh, the current psychiatry journal. And you shared that article with me, and the editor in chief Dr. Henry Nasrallah, he made two suppositions about how extreme politics affect the brain
1: yes, and it was a fascinating article and 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 one that was somewhat to me at least a little a little scary, uh particularly about the part where you know the the stress that it puts us under is something that we can then pass on to our children. Um, you know, as a father, that that was something that um, really I, I, I read and was sort of worried about.
0: Yeah, he was, um, one of the big points that he made was had to do with something called epigenetics. And he was theorizing, well, first of all, I think it has been found that genes can be expressed. Genes don't have to be expressed, but they you know, they can express themselves under, let's say, very stressful conditions. Um, Certain genes will express themselves, and you will have PTSD or you'll have anxiety. And what's scary is that if your genes express themselves and then you have children, those genes can then be expressed in the children, which otherwise wouldn't have been. Oh, got you. He's suggesting that this environment of extreme anger, as it relates to politics, could cause genes to be expressed, which could then be passed on to future generations, which will cause them to be more likely to hate.
1: Yes, and that that was the part, and I think another, that was the part that gave me pause. But another thing that I found very fascinating with that article was the idea about how love and hate are sort of the, the same side or different sides of the same coin, and that the passion that one feels in love um, is very similar to the passion that one feels in hate, and so and it gets one to kind of cling to their to your respective positions and I think i 've seen that kind of bear out in my own discussions with people where you can they so passionately believe what they believe in. you can cite all kinds of evidence and contrary fact, and it simply is dismissed or not acknowledged or uh you know dismissed out of hand because they're so cling to that particular position. And so I can see that about in in the relationship between passion and hate. Um, you know, because, you know, let's just take, for example, passion, right? We've all had friends or, or even ourselves. We've been in relationships where all the facts say we should not be in this relationship, but yet, and all our friends tell us so. But we, we dismiss it or say, you know, or, or come up with contrary facts um, to justify why we're in that because of the passion of it. And so that part also really jumped out at me and struck me.
0: I always thought that there was truth in just the idea that love and hate are different sides of the same coin because they're both passion. And I've and I've said that to my patients for many years. Um, the way that this doctor presented it, I felt like it was a bit of a leap because he was saying that these four or five regions of the brain are lit up by love and then two out of those four are also lit up by hate, so they're the same. And while I think probably the principle is still true, I think that was a leap to suppose that just from you know those two overlapping brain regions.
1: Yes, and I and I think you know I, I take a little. I, I think I believe the article probably a little more than you do, um, because I I guess I'm using my own and sort of apropos of what we've been talking about. I think I. I looked at that article and I saw about, wow, this connection between, you know, love and hate is very similar, and I want to believe that because it made such resonance with me. And what you seem to be pointing out is you're able to go into the actual article itself and say, you know, the the author's making an inferential leap that may not be supported by the actual, you know, we're not there yet, essentially is what you're saying, that there's a couple regions of the brain that aren't activated, and so... Um, you're finding a way to disagree with me about the findings of that article in a way that points to the actual substance of the article. And I'm more thinking, well, this, I want this to be true because it, it, it has such resonance with me and my own experience.
0: I'll agree that I, I think the principle feels true, feels true. But maybe that's not the right evidence for it. Um,
1: Yeah, feelings aren't
0: facts. (laughs) (laughs) And the other piece about epigenetics, I felt that that was a leap also because what we found is that, yes, trauma in the early years can affect you later in life. You can be more at risk for mental illness. That's for sure, Mm -hmm. severe trauma or severe stress. But light stress is good. If you have some stress as a young child, that makes you more resilient to stress later. It protects you.
1: Yes, and I guess it was what the author didn't really make clear is the stress that one undergoes when engaging in political discussions. How is that stress similar to stress that is passed on, right? I mean there is a certain level of stress that is passed on, there's a certain level that's that's actually good. That one engages in, and whether or not that's passed on, i don't know, but I can just tell you from my own experience when people do discuss topics of you know they get to a point of stress that you know maybe it's not family trauma stress, but it's the point of relationships' end over it. Um, I know you know speaking from friends who have lost all kinds of friends that they had over you know whatever presidential candidate. That they had, meaning, and I'm talking 30 decades, years of of friendship ended where the person no longer has a relationship with that other person due to that, uh, due to those political differences. So, obviously, the stress of those two, of engaging in those discussions was such that one person decided to walk away from the relationship because I don't want to bear that kind of stress having to engage in a political discussion with someone who I disagree so I will throw away 30 years of friendship that's quite a stressor in my mind I'm like wow yes. that must be quite a stressor if someone's willing to walk away from a relationship and a friendship over this so maybe there is and maybe there is an argument could be made that the stress that one undergoes in discussing politics is is a significant amount of stress such that it could be one that is passed on epigenetically um, in in generations.
0: Right. I, I think that was my question, is will political discussions, would they be enough to be considered an extreme stressor on a young child that's witnessing that discussion or being in the room, in the house, and... The fights that ensue from it i 'm not sure if that 's stressful enough in most cases they 're always extremes yeah,
1: I think it it probably has to do with the reaction of the parties who are arguing i mean part of actually I look very fondly upon my childhood where my dad was the contrarian of all his friends and he was the conservative position, and all his friends were the liberal positions and I was a kid, and I would you know be in the back playing with my Star Wars figures, but they would be arguing about whatever topics of the day were. And I found it kind of fascinating. And he's um, continued to do that, you know, now into his 70s. And so I experienced this, obviously, disagreement among adults. But I think that it was done in a constructive way that didn't have any kind of stressful reaction. Um, But... I guess you know, like I said, it depends upon the reaction of the people participating. But I did find it striking that you know relationships have ended over political disagreements, and there has That's to be a true, and there has to be a connection between the stress that one undergoes in that, um, and also the, the the willingness to stay in that relationship, and maybe some of it is there's a a, a degree of disappointment in the relationship in that, wow, I thought you shared the values that I had. Part of our friendship was formed on this, on what I thought were shared values. And so when you take this political position, I'm realizing that you don't share the same values that I do. And maybe I've been wrong about you all along. And that becomes the basis for ending the relationship. And what it I think should be would be more like, well, wait, now I understand something about you new that I didn't understand previously. Tell me more about that. And so instead of ending a relationship, we actually help bridge it and help strengthen it. And I think that's what we should do um, when we have these disagreements with our friends and something that our friends or family do that feels opposite of the way we thought they believed.
0: Neil Clark, thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it.
0: I appreciate the discussion.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Alexandra Miller. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasula. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude even when things don't go exactly as planned and can
0: be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.